Amen. So let's turn to the scriptures. Just um, the very end today of 1 Thessalonians. It's been a helpful little journey just to go back to basics but better is kind of what we've called it. Go back to what church looks like. And we're at the very end, so uh, it's on page 1188. And we're starting uh, chapter 5, verse 12. We're just going to read through then to the, uh, to the end of the letter. And in the NIV, he calls this um, final instructions. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters... To acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace sanctify you through and through may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it brothers and sisters pray for us greet all god's people with a holy kiss i charge you before the lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you. Father God, help us understand this today. We pray that it comes to us as the word of God. Pray that by your spirit it comes powerfully. Pray that by your Holy Spirit it comes as the double-edged sword, that prophetic word that digs into the very heart of who we are and what we do and changes us from the inside. So please come amongst us and bless us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there are times in life when you want the full instructions for something. Okay, so you, you think, oh, maybe I've blown a fuse uh, somewhere in my car. Um, <clears throat> and you get out the instruction book. Because even if you remember where the fuse box is, you don't remember what order they come in and um, which ones you try to pull out. Most of the time, even when you bought the car, I reckon you didn't read that from cover to cover. Is that true? Um, maybe there was a quick start guide which gave you the essentials and you read it and off you go. And, and you've driven the car ever since. Or you get a new TV, maybe, or a new piece of, uh, of tech. Um, and there's a handbook which tells you somewhere the exact current the power supply is drawing under different conditions. Though in reality, we had a new TV, a great blessing it has been. Um, there's no handbook at all. Um, you have to go online for that kind of stuff if you want all the detail. But most of the rest of the time, you read the quick start guide, um, and then you, then you got on with it. So in terms of theology, um, 
there's an interesting parallel. So some of you um, <coughs> may... Oh, can we keep, go back to that slide? Some of you may have been using this big book. That's called Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a big tome of theology. It's a great book, very readable. Um, buy it uh, if you can. Or there's a kind of uh, there's a middle-sized version, a slightly cut-down version called Bible Doctrine, which is an edited-down version of that. That's the one we're using um, in Illuminate. What I didn't tell the Illuminators is that there's a, there's a kind of like there's a laminated sheet version, which I think it opens out into two, uh, or if I can remember, I think it just opens out into two. Um, there's a kind of laminated sheet. There's a cheat sheet, okay? And it, and it just has all the headings so, so you can see. And I think this little last half chapter uh, of 1 Thessalonians is Paul's kind of cheat sheet. It's the cut-down um, version. But what's it, what is it the cheat sheet for? Well, it starts with um, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters... It's about being a family. What does it end with? May God himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the third time Paul's said something like this in the letter. So this is Paul's cheat sheet to being a church that has the future in view. It's his cut down instructions to being the future focus family of God and it shouldn't entirely surprise us um, some of Paul's most wide-ranging instructions come in the smallest sentences and sometimes in the, in the most obscure passages sometimes they're tucked away at the end of letters like they are here so try it for yourself go, go through some of the letters of Paul and, and see if you can find the similar kind of passages I'll give you one which is kind of the second half of, uh, of Romans 12 um, try it for yourself look through the letters of Paul and you'll find these little kind of uh, things I mean the NIV calls it final instructions so it, it almost reads like the blurb you know on the inside back cover of the book you know which you never really read and it tells you about the author or whatever it is and it, it sums it up so it almost reads when you read that it's final instructions as well that this doesn't really matter just this is kind of I don't know Paul padding till he gets to the end far from it not at all. This is fundamental stuff. Yes, it's, it's tightly packed and it's said in a few words. But this is your cheat sheet to doing church. Okay? Um, because it tells us about leadership, tells us about fellowship, um, and it tells us about worship. And we'll look at those three um, in, in turn. So let's look at the first one. Leadership. Paul says... Well, actually, I've, I've quoted from a different version for the previous version of the NIV here. And I think, I don't know why the new NIV has changed it, but this is a better translation. Now, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work, and live in peace um, with one another. So Paul's first instruction is to acknowledge those who are over you in the Lord. Now, this is not a kind of fully developed theology of eldership, is it? But there are two things, look, that are key. One is that leadership is plural. Leadership is by a group, not an individual. And the second thing, which is dead obvious, but it needs to be said that there are some people who are set apart for leadership in a church. So eldership is by a group, and they are set apart and given the responsibility of being over 
the other people in the church. It's not just every decision is made by every church member. We're all equals in salvation. We're all equals in Christ, aren't we? But some are called and set apart to lead, to be over, to use the words of Paul, the others in the congregation. And we don't know much more about um, what happened in, in Thessalonica, but there are two guys later on called Aristarchus and Secundus who, who worked with Paul later on in, in, in Acts. So maybe Aristarchus and, and uh, Secundus were, were elders uh, in the church in Thessalonica. <coughs> this is a live issue in church, in our church. We're a congregational church. It means all the big decisions are made by the church meeting, but some of those big decisions are to appoint pastors, to appoint elders, and to appoint deacons. How do they interact after that? It's been a live question. If you've been in deacons meetings recently, you will know this. If you haven't, then you'll be blissfully unaware. But how do elders and deacons and congregation uh, interact in the big decisions that church makes. Well, we're going to try and um, spell that out a bit clearly so that um, nobody is, is left in any confusion. But the bottom line is this. It relies on mutual trust, mutual respect, and humility. So the elders, yes, they're over you in the Lord, but they're only ever under shepherds. That's what Peter calls them. They're, only, they're always under the Lord Jesus as you are under the Lord Jesus. So yes, elders are over you, but they're always under shepherds. And you as a church called to acknowledge them and, and respect them. But of course, they're always going to be, Christian leadership is always servant leadership, so they're going to respect and love you and trust you in return. It only works, really, if there is mutual love and trust. Because elders, leaders amongst you, they do two things. One is that they work hard. Paul says that they work hard among you. They toil for you. It's a word, it's a word of manual labor. They work hard among you. John Stott says um, true pastoral work is hard work. I don't want you ever to think that eldership or, or, or pastoral work is, is, is easy or can be done in short order. It's hard to wrestle with the scriptures. It's really hard work and I kind of like, I just, well, one of these recent weeks I kind of, I came, came out of the, the study on a Friday and I went to Leslie and I said, I've got a structure. In other words, which means for me is I finally understood what this passage means um, and, and where it's going. It's hard work to understand the scriptures. Not least because when your leaders understand them, you don't just want them to intellectually understand it. You want them to have had a visceral reaction to it. It has to have made a difference in their lives. So wrestling with the scriptures, it's hard work. It's hard to stand by people when they become infirm and die. That's what your leaders do. It's hard to train people up and then give them a chance to lead and serve. It's hard to let People make mistakes. So I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying if you aspire to pastoral ministry, don't ever think that it's easy. It is hard work. So they work hard amongst you and they admonish you. In other words, one of the things you should expect your leaders to do is tell you when you've got it wrong. So please expect them to do that. It's emotionally hard work 
to correct people. It's hard work to try and understand what's going on in this person's life. I don't understand why they are reacting the way they are. It is hard work to get to grips with that. What is going on? And then it's hard work to work out what's the biblical response to that. How can I bring the Bible into that person's situation to help them move on from whatever they're struggling with? So the congregation's response is to respect their leaders and acknowledge what they do. And perhaps the biggest thing you can do, interestingly, isn't it, when Paul says at the end of the, of the second of these verses, verse 13, perhaps the biggest help you can give the eldership is to live in peace with one another. The hardest work of elders is when you go, oh no, they've fallen out again. Okay. And to love them then, Paul says, you're to love your leaders. You're to love them. Don't forget to love your leaders as fellow members of the church. Don't put them on such a pedestal that you forget to love them. They need your love as much as all of us need each other's love. And while we're thinking about the future focus, because Paul is all about a future focus here, what difference does a future perspective make to how you treat your elders? Well, I think one of the things you do is recognise it's just for a time. It's just for a, a, a season. If you feel you've been passed over for leadership and you're a bit grumpy about it, or if you feel frustrated with the leadership because they don't do the things you would want them to do, then one of the part, part of the future focus is recognising it's just for a time. We're not asking you to do this, submit to your leaders and love them for, for, forever. It's just for a moment. And the day will come back when Jesus returns, and even Christ at that point, who has been king and lord, will hand that kingship back to his father so that God may be all in all. That's the middle of 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 28. Even Jesus, who is ruling now, submits to his father. And one day he will give that, he will give that back to the father when he returns so that God may be all in all. This is just temporary this situation we're in and your elders are trying to do their best to prepare you to be ready for that day when Jesus returns so that's leadership <clears throat> secondly Paul talks about fellowship he ups the tone a bit he said we ask you to acknowledge those who work hard amongst you now we urge you um, brothers and sisters warn those who are idle etc etc now, he says, I'm, I'm urging you, church people, um, take responsibility for your family members in Christ. What, do, what family responsibilities do you have? Just, just think through them in your mind. You've got little kids. You've got this responsibility all the time, haven't you, to look after their safety and to bring them up and to teach them. Where are your siblings at? If you're an adult, you've got an eye on them. I hope. I hope you get on well. And, and, you know, there's a mutual support and a bit of a checking in on them. Or maybe you're caring for, for elderly parents. Paul says it's the same with your church family. You have a family responsibility for them, whether they're little kids, whether they're your brothers and sisters, whether they're your uh, mums and dads in the faith. And Paul says, first off, he says, warn the idol. 
don't know if we've got any idle people. It was a particular problem in Thessalonica because of this situation where some people were kind of professional hangers-on um, to those people who, who were powerful. Um, so I don't know whether there's anybody idle. But if there are, if you think of somebody who's not pulling their weight, don't whinge. Warn. Don't whinge about them. Go and talk to them about it. It's your responsibility. Is somebody being disruptive, Paul says, or snarky or divisive or just downright impolite? Don't wait. Warn. Your job, good church member, is not to just stand by and watch as... As people behave inappropriately in, in the church life, it's your responsibility to go and talk to them about it, to warn them. And can I give you a really important key? First thing you need to do is find a scripture that applies. Don't go and take your own words of warning to them. Find a scripture that applies and take them there. And that scripture, so it's really clear that it's not from you, it's a warning um, from the Lord. It's your responsibility. Encourage the disheartened. Find ways to put courage into timid folk. Speak with them, pray with them, accompany them to stuff. We talked about this before. <clears throat> Be patient with everyone. John Stott talks and says, um, it's a great little book. I recommend it. Um, his commentary on 1 Thessalonians. He said, every church has its problem children. Um, he says, don't get exasperated. Be patient. Be long-suffering. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something God is working in you. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. So easy, isn't it? You're, you're sitting there kind of <coughs> fantasizing about how you're going to pay somebody back. Or the things you like, is that just me? Or is that, I, I trust, I think, that, um, so easy to, to kind of start planning how you're going to how are you going to pay back wrong for wrong? No, you're not allowed. All potential revenge and retaliation are forbidden to the followers of Jesus. That's John Stott again. So it's your job not to pay back wrong for wrong. But look, um, it's also your job to make sure that nobody else pays back wrong for wrong. I tell you what, you've got a big responsibility, haven't you? Your job. Yes, it's your job to stick your neck into quarrels going on in church and bring something sensible and scriptural to bear. Always strive to do what is good for other people, uh, for each other rather, and for everyone else. So he says, be good, do good, practice other people-centeredness um, in church, but not just in church, but outside church. Be good. What does he say? Everyone else. So I don't know what your feelings are, but you can't treat the non-Christian world, the society around you. We're not to think of them as the enemy. We're to think of them as people we can be good to. How does a future focus help us then do our fellowship? How does it help us be family? Well, this stuff that you do, <clears throat> this warning and this encouraging... And this being good is preparing people for when Christ returns. Is getting them ready so on that day they are not going to be embarrassed by their lack of Christian behaviour. Or even 
God forbid, that they're not in Christ at all. You are preparing them. You have a responsibility to prepare them for the day that Jesus returns, to make sure that nobody, nobody gets left behind. There's an interesting verse in, in 2 Thessalonians. You know the thing about not paying back um, trouble to those who trouble you. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. So that's why you don't need to do it now, because when Jesus returns, God will do it for you. If it really needs doing, God will do it when Jesus returns. And the other thing I think we kind of maybe think about is kind of like, uh, do, I, do I really have to be nice to these people now? Because one, one day we'll die, one day I'll be dying, and then I'll be released from them. No. No, no, sorry. Quite the opposite. This is your forever family. This is your forever family. You're with them um, now, and they will be in glory with you. There's a good reason to be good to them, to be nice with them, and to get them ready uh, for that day, because they're your family. Not just in this life, they're your family forever. Worship, then. <clears throat> Paul says this, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in, in Christ Jesus. Now, these are not actually commands given out to individuals. They're commands given out to the church. They're commands given in the plural. So one writer even suggests these could be headings in a church service for your order of service. Of course, they're true for you personally, day by day, because any worship that's true of you here is true for you day by day. But rejoice always is the first one. Don't know how you find that in real life. Paul is not ordering you to be continually happy. Okay, let's be clear. But he is inviting you to joyfully worship the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It is a strength to you to, to rejoice in the good things God has done for you. Pray continually. I can't mean pray 24-7. You need your sleep. And when you're talking to somebody over the meal table, it's hard to be praying at the same time. It doesn't mean literally pray 24-7, but it's an invitation to persistent, consistent prayer. It's an invitation to change things um, by your prayer life. Um, persistent, consistent prayer changes things. But it means that we set time aside um, in church services and try to set time aside... Um, in different contexts, to pray. Because your prayer changes things. It really does. And give thanks in all circumstances. Thanksgiving is transformative. Why should I give thanks? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I think we would we'd hate to be seen as unthankful people, ungrateful people, but, but so often when you've got something, does, is, is going back to Thanksgiving when you've got it, Maybe you've prayed for something, you've got it. It, it. Does Thanksgiving change anything? Well, we talk about seeing things through rose-tinted spectacles, don't we? Meaning um, somebody, uh, meaning people who insist on seeing things as better than they really are. People see things with rose-tinted spectacles. I think most of us have the opposite problem. We see things through blue-tinted blue spectacles. We see things more depressing than they really are. 
we could say, couldn't we, today, gosh, it's a chaotic, war-filled world and there is no hope. We could say <laughs> our, our government is a, is, a, is a national and international embarrassment and there is no hope. You could say it is a life, it is a painful life and I cannot escape being in pain. But it's not true that there's no hope. It's not true that God is absent. It's not true that, that God is, is not in control. It's not true that because we are growing old and in pain that God is unable to give us good things. And thanksgiving has this effect of unbluing our spectacles and making them a bit more rosy. It, it does us good. It is not just right to be thankful. It is transformative. And notice, I think Paul understands that maybe none of these things come naturally to us. Rejoice always, really? Pray continually, really? Give thanks in all circumstances, really? This is hard, Paul, but it's God's will for you. In other words, this is what God would have you be. This is what God would have you do. And so these things, they come into church services, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. But of course, fundamentally, we also want to hear God speak. We want to hear God speak. So Paul says, don't quench the spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And then towards the end, he says this as well. Verse 27, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. When we come together in our worship, we want to hear God speak. Please, Lord, we want to hear you speak. And there are two mechanisms of hearing God speak that Paul talks about. One is having his letter read um, to all the brothers and sisters. And Paul doesn't say... Um, when, you've read this, when you've read this letter, test it. He just says, read it. Um, Paul is clear that what he's laid down is by God's grace, by God's providence. It is authoritative. It doesn't need testing, but there is something else going on. In, in his church, there are, there are prophecies. There are prophetic messages um, which are coming by the Holy Spirit. Um, and Paul says, don't treat them with contempt. I don't... I don't honestly understand why they would be um, treating them with contempt. Maybe they just feel so much less than Paul when, when Paul's around them. I don't know. But the latter has to be tested because human fallibility is involved. So things have changed, I think, since that time. The little Thessalonian church, they didn't have the whole New Testament so prophecy was more important. We have the whole uh, of, of the scriptures finished and it tells us all we need to know about God. All the evangelical churches believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures. In other words, that all you need to know for salvation is there. In other words, if there were a never another word of prophecy again, you would have all that you needed um, in the scriptures. So our Church is, is, is different in the sense that we focus more on the authoritative word. But even that, we want it to be prophetic. We want it to come with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we want it to cut us now like a double-edged sword. 
and we want it to apply to us and we want it to apply to our times. But there will be times, there will be occasions when prophecy comes. It just seems to come in the Lord's, um, in the Lord's providence, in the Lord's plan. It seems to come more in times of revival when the Lord speaks words and a word comes from somebody in the church to the rest of the church or to an individual uh, about specifics about situations. There's nothing wrong with that. I think if you think at some point you have a word of prophecy, then you bring it to the front. It might be that we bring it back to the church the following week because there's no reason why prophecy has to be immediate. It has to be on the same day because it has to be tested. So come and speak it if you feel like you've had a word of a prophecy or the Lord is laying something on, on your heart. Write it down. But there are two mechanisms. There's the authoritative word of Christ and we explain it and we preach it. And we want that to be prophetic. But there might be more. But I think rather than praying for a revival in prophecy, we need to be praying for a revival full stop. We need to be praying for Christ to come and do a greater work and reach people. And when that happens, prophecy seems to increase. How does the future help? Well, I guess we could look at 1 Corinthians 13. Sorry, just go back one. Sorry, Ian. Now we see only as a reflection in a mirror. We just, we see, we're told about Christ. We experience him in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now we see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. We're going to this place where we're not going to need any teaching anymore because we're going to see God face to face. We're not going to need to be exhausted anymore because our bodies are going to do what, what God wants them to do. We just encourage ourselves with those kind of thoughts. But just to try and wrap up, just to move towards a conclusion. Paul prays that Paul says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. This is Paul's final prayer for for this little church. May God himself, may God himself sanctify you. Through and through, in other words, all the, all the way through to the middle will, will God keep making you holy further and further to the, to the inside. <laughs> Sanctification is kind of like getting down right to the maybe sanctified in your, in your deepest desires, in the deepest aspects of your personality. Um, sanctification, in other words, growing in godliness, it, it, it has to come from God. So is that, is that your experience? Are you, are you, is, is God speaking to you week by week, month by month? Is God saying things to you? Because this is what he's wanting to do. This is, he's, this is what he's active in. The Lord himself is active in the sanctification of his people, if only they just walk with him. That doesn't mean you can't do nothing. But God himself is wanting you to be more like Jesus in the deeper places in your life, in the, in the 
bits of your life that stubbornly refuse to be, to be like Christ. Is that your experience? You can never stand still in the Christian life. It always has to be going on. It always has to be getting deeper and deeper within you. And Paul ultimately is confident that this prayer is going to be answered. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So after all this kind of like future focus um, and, and after all this exhortation, Paul says, actually, God is bothered about, about you getting to the future and getting to the day of Christ uh, and being blameless um, on that day. And, and, and he is more bothered than you are. And I am praying, he says, that, that you, will be, you will get there. And he says, actually, it's God who's faithful and he will do it. That's the good news, isn't it? That actually God is more bothered about we than we are about arriving at that point, and he will do it. So one last thought. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, pray for us. He's very humble. He recognizes that as he prays for them, so he needs prayer from them. And that's true of any leadership, any ministry. Prayer goes both ways. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Now, another sting in the tail. I was thinking about, I came to the end of sort of preparing the sermon and thinking, one of the things that struck me over the past couple of weeks, two or three weeks, is, is that as a church, I, I've just seen... Um, people left out in the cold, shall we say. And we're a great church, and we're a warm church, and we're a church of great fellowship, and yet, what a horrible thing if we were elitist, or we were racist. And I was thinking to the Lord, I came to the end of the preparation and thought, Lord, this has been on my mind for a couple of weeks. Can I, can I kind of shoehorn this? Um, into, into this sermon somewhere. And then I thought, no, I can't. Um, just need to be honest with the text. And then sort of coming to the end last night, uh, came to this verse. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Ow! Do you get that? Treat all God's people with the same degree of intimacy. Ouch. I don't know who your friends... When, when you go out there in a minute, you're going to sit with your friends, okay? Happens every week. And you're going to hug your friends, those you feel close to. And you're going to largely, you know, leave all those other people that you don't really know. I, I don't think you can do that anymore, according to this verse. Because you have to greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Okay, you don't have to go and snog them all. All right, because let's put this in a cultural context. Um, that's, not our, that's not usually our kind of um, uh, British way of, of, of greeting people. It's, it's a European thing or uh, a Middle Eastern thing. Um, but if you hug one of them, 
maybe you should hug all of them. That's all I'm saying. Okay? Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. In other words, no cliques. Find out, have a look around this morning before you sit down at your tables. Okay, and, and greet your friends. Um, who amongst God's people am I unintentionally ignoring? I know I shall, and I shall be looking out. Okay, but not in a judgmental way, of course. Okay, just to see whether you sit with your friends or whether you whether you can greet all God's people with a holy kiss. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Isn't it a good job that Christianity is all about grace? It's all about grace. It started with grace. God chose us not because of anything we'd done, but because of his mercy. That's where we started. They were chosen, and Paul says, I know you were chosen. because the, I can see you were chosen because the message came with power. And you understood God's grace that Christ died for you. Something you didn't earn, something you didn't deserve. And it finishes with grace. The one who calls you is faithful to see you all the way through and he will do it. And so he prays. May that starting grace, that perpetuating grace, that finishing grace be with you all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. This is all about grace. Thank you that you called us, you chose us, and your message came to us with power, and we heard it. It had bitten, and we've been changed. Thank you that grace sustains us. We fall repeatedly, and by your grace, the cross still covers for our sin. If we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. And you forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we pray, Lord, um, from today going forward, we'd be a people who greet all our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same level of intimacy as we do our best friends. Because it's just growing to be more like Jesus so that when he returns, we'll be ready. We'll be like him. I'm ready to enter the new country. Not embarrassed, not having fallen short, but having walked it all the way through. We thank you, Lord, that your grace will see that it happens. And for that, we give you glory. Amen.